that's so cool to see how church and missions work together. I had the privilege of a couple months ago, um, I met one of the students from the Middle East here. It was their first Sunday here on a Sunday morning, and I was chatting with Matt in the back after the service, and he was with the student. I'm going to call him John to protect his identity. He's from the Middle East. His name is not John, but we'll pretend his name is John for this story. And so I'm talking with John, and I said, John, welcome to the States. How long have you been here? He had been here for about a year studying at the U. And I said, have you ever been to a church before? He said, no, this is my very first time at a church of of any kind. I grew up Muslim and, and I've been here in America for about a year, but no one's invited me to church until Matt and Stephanie invited me. And this is my first time ever stepping my foot in the door of a church. How cool. And I just said, how was it for you? What was your experience like? And he said, oh, pastor, I felt so much peace. He he said, my life is so stressful and so chaotic, and the world is so chaotic. The the country that I grew up in is divided and at war, and and everything here in America is busy, and life is hurried, hurried, and people are hurting. And when I came here, I felt so much peace. Peace unlike I've ever felt before. These are his words. I'm not making it up. And he said, I will definitely be back. And he's been back multiple times. And so my question for us this morning is how do we, in this hurried and hurting world, God has blessed Park Community Church in this season of life and ministry where somebody from the Middle East can come their very first time stepping in the doors of a church building, experience the peace of God. So how can we as a church family in this hurried and hurting world, how can we maintain God's peace? How can we maintain being a people in a place of peace? And that's really the cry of our heart. That's what we want for this church. That's what, what you want. That's what I hope you've experienced. That is what John from the Middle East has experienced, the peace of God. And it's experienced both because of the people and this place. I mean, there's this dynamic duo of people and place, and, and these people have experienced peace of God, the peace of God, because of their interactions with you, but then also because of this place where they can come and gather and, and, and just sense the synergy of the Holy Spirit, right? We're New Testament Christians, so we know, and we're going to talk a lot about this as we study the book of Haggai over the next three weeks, because we have to make a differentiation between the Old Testament temple and the New Testament temple, the Old Testament temple was a, it was a place, it was a structure, but the New Testament temple is a people. It's us. We'll look at that as we go in the sermon this morning together, but I want us to really dive into that question. How can we, how can we maintain a presence of peace here in St. Louis Park and wherever our spheres of influence are? It requires the people, and God has blessed us with a place How do we maintain God's presence of peace? And so to engage that question, we're going to look at the book of Haggai. It's a short book, it's just two chapters, and so we're going to study all of chapter one this morning, and then we'll break up chapter two over the next two weeks and study that. I'm going to ask if you could stand as I read Haggai chapter one. It's on page 791 in the Pew Bible, if you don't have your own Bible. I encourage you, even if you're not comfortable or familiar with the Bible, get a Bible open Grab the Pew Bible in front of you, page 791, flip there and follow along with these words as I read it. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, 
the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You know what? Brittany, could you come and read the passage? I have a, I'm getting over a cold and I have a tickle in my throat, and so I'm going to try and take care of that while my wife reads the passage. Starting in verse 5. Now therefore says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil on what is ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, on the sec- in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that it came to Haggai the prophet, that you spoke from heaven on high. And that this word went out to your people, Israel, and they they listened. And then this word was recorded and transcribed through the generations so that we could read it here today, Lord. Your word says about itself that it is living and active. So I pray that as we look at Haggai chapter 1 this morning, as we study this passage that it would indeed be living and active in us, that it wouldn't be dry, old, ancient words on a page. But I ask that you, Holy Spirit, would help this message from Haggai to come alive to us today. We pray these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus the Christ. Amen. You may have a seat. All right, so let me summarize kind of Haggai 1 for you, and then we'll walk into the book of Haggai. What is the big idea for this morning? As I consider Haggai chapter 1, and as we want to talk about being a people and a place of peace, what does Haggai have to do with peace? Well, here's the big idea, is that we become a people and a place of peace as we shift our priority from gratifying self to glorifying God. We become a people and a place of peace as we shift our priorities from, glorif- from gratifying self to glorifying God. Now, I believe that, that John, who I referred to earlier, experienced the peace of God among us because God is doing that in our church body. 
that many of you have been, that the Spirit of God has worked in you and is helping to continually, increasingly shift your priority from gratifying yourself to actually glorifying God. And so if we want to maintain this, this identity, this reputation as a people and a place of peace, here's how we maintain that. By continuing to allow God to shift our priorities from self to him. I think we see that here in Haggai chapter 1. And so keep that in mind. We'll walk through Haggai chapter 1 and we'll wrap it up at the end. Here's the problem. And the problem in Haggai chapter 1 is that the people are lacking true and abiding peace in God. See, God loves his people. God loves the Israelites. He loves the Jews. He longs for his people to be at peace with him, with each other, and with the world. God is a God of peace. The the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. It means wholeness. It means completion. God loves his people, and he longs for his people to experience the shalom, the peace of God. But they weren't experiencing it. They were lacking true and abiding peace. See, the context here in the book of Haggai is that the Israelites had returned from exile about 18 years earlier. This right here, when, it, when he says in chap, chapter 1, verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, this is August 29th, 520 B.C. So this is a historic event. Scripture incorporates history. Scripture is history. It's a spiritual book, yes, but it's also a historic book. This is a historic event that the Israelites had been taken off into exile, into Babylon. The Babylonians came and they, they took over the city, Jerusalem, and they dragged the Jews off into exile. And after 70 years of exile, the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, took over Babylon and he made an edict that Israel could now return to their holy city, to Jerusalem. They could go home. And so King Cyrus of the Persians made this edict. He, he declared that Israel can return home. They can go back to Jerusalem. They can worship their God. They can rebuild their temple. They can rebuild their city. And so they went back to Jerusalem. And now, about 18 years later, they're back in Jerusalem. But the temple is still unfinished. Upon returning some 18 years earlier, they had got to work on the temple right away, but then work stalled because there was opposition coming. You can read about this in the book of Ezra. If you want to read Ezra along with the book of Haggai, that would be a great helper, and Zechariah. Ezra, Zechariah, and Haggai go really well together to help you understand kind of the Jews returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding their city and rebuilding their temple. But they had returned some 18 years earlier, and there was opposition to them building the temple. Once they started building, opposition came, and that opposition caused them to pause on building the temple But then that wasn't just a temporary pause. It led into their continued neglect and disobedience to build the temple. And because they didn't build the temple, they were lacking God's peace. See, in the Old Testament, God's peace was most prominent. It was most visible. It was most accessible to them in temple worship. The temple allowed them to make sacrifices. It it allowed them to receive atonement from their sins, to, to meet with God. And they were neglecting God. And as a result, they were suffering. They weren't at peace. Look at Haggai chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. God says, you have sown much and harvested little. See, see there, there's this conflict in them. 
There's this lack of peace. There's this lack of prosperity. There's this lack of God providing things for them. Verse 6, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into bags with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So he's saying, because of your neglect of the temple, there's, there's a lack of peace. You're working, you're reaping a harvest, and then it's gone. You, you, you put your proceeds in a bag with holes. There's never enough. You, you never have enough. And then look down at verse 10 and 11. Uh, let's start in verse, the middle of verse 9. God says, Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called a drought on the land and, and on the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all of their labors. See, they're not at peace. The problem is the temple is laying in ruins. They're not able to worship God as God intends. They're not able to, to make sacrifice for their sins. They're not able to meet with God. And as a result of their neglecting building the house, they're experiencing discipline from God and distance from God and a lack of provision from God. They had misplaced their priorities. Remember, they, they came back to Jerusalem with the edict from Cyrus the Great, you can return, and then he passed away, and Darius is the new king, as it tells us here in verse 1. And Darius is allowing them to build the temple. They have the freedom to build the temple. They've been sitting back in Jerusalem for almost 20 years. They started the work, opposition came, they stopped the work, and they've never picked the work back up. How many of you are, are guilty of that? You start a project, something happens, and you never go and complete the project. Maybe it's because at first the project is hard, but then you get distracted. You get busy with something else. That's exactly what happens to Israel here. And God is saying, you're lacking peace. You're lacking peace because I've become second place. And so that's the reason. The reason that they're lacking peace is because God's house lay in ruins. It was laying in ruins because each person was concerned with gratifying self rather than glorifying God. They had busied themselves with their own homes and clans, and agendas. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Why? Why isn't it time? They've been there for almost 20 years. Why isn't it time? Well, it answers for us. Verse 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse 4, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? That word paneled there, it's, it's the same interior of Solomon's temple. It's this luxurious, it's this glorious building that they were doing. And, and they're saying, it's not time for us to rebuild the temple. And God comes and he says, is it not time for you to rebuild the temple? Because you dwell in your own paneled houses Well. This house lies in ruins. Jump again down to verse 9, the middle of it. Because my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. So the reason that Israel was lacking peace is because the temple remained unfinished. And the reason the temple remained unfinished is because they were prioritizing self over God. They were busy gratifying themselves with their own desires, chasing their own wants, as it says specifically here in the text, that they were busying themselves with their own homes. 
So they had actually prioritized their individual dwelling and their individual space over the community space of God, over the dwelling place of God. And so a couple questions for us to consider this morning. Where are you prioritizing your home over God's? Now, we're going to talk in just a second about God's home. I said it in the beginning, set that preface, that, that this building is not God's house any longer. This building is. You and I are. Our bodies are the temple of the living God. But, but I think it's good for each one of us to consider where are we potentially prioritizing our home over God's work? As we enter a, a building campaign, we're talking about doing some building renovations here, and I've had a lot of great conversations, and I love that our church is wrestling through this idea of should we invest money in our building or should we invest money in other places? My answer is yes, both. But I love that the church is wrestling with that, and, and it's interesting, as I wrestle through this, I think how many of the people in our church are investing money in their own homes, in their own renovations, in their own kitchen remodels, in their own living room remodels, in their own whatever it may be. And, and, and I'm guilty of this, where sometimes I, I judge the church for renovating or for building, but then I'm busy improving my own house. Why do I do that? Why do Brittany and I give some consideration to our home, to our dwelling place? We don't have paneled houses. We have painted houses. But, but why do we consider the space of our home? Because we want it to be hospitable. We want it to be a place that we can have people into our home, into our lives, that we can have meals with people and share life with people. And so I think the question applies to the church building as well. If we have a building, how do we care for it? How do we create a hospitable place? And the question, I, I think each of us, as we enter a capital campaign, the, the question each of us should be asking ourselves is, do I prioritize my own space over my church's space? And we're all going to answer that differently, and there's going to be different convictions for that and different callings in that, but I think it's a great question to answer. But before we go further on this line of reasoning in this topic, let's make sure we get crystal clear that we're not living in the Old Testament, right? This building is not the temple of God. God does not dwell in this building. To see that, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As we study the book of Haggai, we have to make crystal clear that we're not drawing a comparison between the church building and the Old Testament temple. And I love how the Apostle Paul does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 9. It's on page 953 in the Pew Bible. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's just coming out of this. In, in chapter 3, he's talking about how people come to place their faith in Jesus Christ and not, not picking favorites, this pastor or that pastor or this ministry or that ministry. Verse 9, he says, For we are God's fellow workers. Anyone who's proclaiming Jesus Christ is a fellow worker of God. And don't worry about who you came to faith under, which pastor you appreciated the best, or which evangelist has the most fruit and work. Everyone proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ as a fellow worker of God. And then he says in the second half of verse 9, you are God's field and God's building. So he gives this agricultural metaphor that, that we are the fruit of God's work. We are God's field. Through us, God is doing his work. He is planting his seed in the nations of the world. We are also God's building. Keep that in mind. You are God's building. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, 
and someone else building upon it. And so he's using this, this imagery of a building, this foundation, to talk about the church. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation of the church. He is the cornerstone. We are his body. He is the head. We are his building. He is the cornerstone. He is the one that the church is built on. Verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's works will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a great reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so Paul here is using this this building imagery to talk about the building of the church, that God's peace is primarily found in a people, not in a place, that, that the The church is the family, not the facility. Look at verse 16, how he makes it so clear. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Isn't that amazing, church? When we gather on a Sunday morning, we don't enter into the presence of God because he's residing in this building waiting for his people to come. If you experience God when we gather, it's because he is living in the Christians who are gathered. You are the temple of the living God. Your body is the temple of the living God. God has chosen to make his dwelling in you. You are the temple. If you understood the Old Testament temple sacrifice and worship and everything that went into that, that would wow you because God would come down and dwell in the temple. And there was all this preparation, all of these rules, all these laws, all of these ceremonial things to clean it up so that, people, so that the priests could go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies one day a year. And now the New Testament reality is that God is dwelling in his people. He's residing in us. Amen, church? We, we don't have to go through a series of rituals and, and cleaning ourselves up, and we don't have to come to a place. There is no Mecca. There is no place that we have to travel to to experience the presence of God. When you gather in a church building, you experience God not because he was sitting here waiting for you to enter his presence. You experience God because he's sitting here and he's stirring up your affections for him. And the synergy of Christians coming together causes us to experience the peace and the presence of God in a way where we don't experience it as powerfully when we're alone with him often. Right? It's not because he's in the building. It's not because he needs a building. It's because he's in us. We are his building. Let's flip back to Haggai. But the question remains, does this building play a place in our experiencing God? Does it have a purpose? I mean, this this building isn't the church, though a church has habitually met here for 70 years. We could use any building to gather as the church. A gymnasium, an auditorium, an amphitheater, your homes... In fact, when you scatter in community groups because you're underneath the oversight of God's appointed leaders, you you are the church gathered. And so, but the question remains is, does this place matter? I, I would submit to you that it does. That John, from the Middle East, experienced the peace of God in a powerful and unique way because he had a place to enter where God's people were gathered. 
when, when God brought Brittany and I here to St. Louis Park seven years ago to plant a church, we, we realized that planting a church without a place was really hard. It's possible, it's doable, but in our culture, in, in Minnesota culture, people still value place. We had relationships with non-believers and we were intentionally, both Ben and myself, were working in places outside of the church building to try and connect with non-believers. And almost always, those who weren't followers of Jesus, as we would build a relationship with them, they were like, hey, that's awesome that you're starting a church. Tell me when you guys have a building, when you have a place to meet. We'll come and we'll check it out. Really, one of the ways that they wanted their first introduction to the gospel to be, other than our relationship, was a gathering so they could kind of sit back passively and observe what was happening. And so I think we as a church family, we need to consider our facility. And individually, if we want to maintain the peace of God, regardless of if this leads to a building renovation or not, we need to simply ask ourselves, am I prioritizing my home over, again, this isn't God's home, but over the home that God's people gather in and use as a ministry tool in the center of their city? How are you doing with that? Is there an imbalance? That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying don't renovate your kitchen, don't renovate your living room, don't buy a new home, don't whatever. But is there an imbalance? Do you prioritize your stuff over God's stuff? Second question, are you pri- prioritizing your clan over God's clan? See, one of the issues with Israel too is, yes, it's, as it says explicitly in this text, that they were busying themselves with their own homes and neglecting God's home. They were also prioritizing their clans over God's. That, that means their, their individual families and their tribes. They were concerned kind of about them rather than the whole community of Israel. And so the question for us to consider, if we want to continue growing as a church, as a, as a place and a people of peace, where might you be prioritizing your individual sphere of influence too much? at the extent of the whole. Now, we're all in an individual sphere of influence. You're in a place of work, you're in a neighborhood, you're in a family, you're in a community group, you have your connections in the church family, and so there's no fighting against that, it's just the reality. We all have our own little clans. Sometimes they're called cliques. But just think about it, you can't, you can't live life without a group of people. We all need a group of people. Now. I think we should call a spade a spade and say that in the church there's going to be clans, there's going to be cliques, but we, we don't want those cliques or clans to become So if we want to be a people in a place of peace, I think we should assess, are we too worried about our people? Do we have blind eyes to see the others? Are we too worried about connecting with the millennials and we never notice the seniors or care about the seniors? Are we too worried about connecting with the seniors and and getting what we want and and neglecting the millennials? Are we too worried about our community group and all the heavy pressures that we're experiencing here and and neglecting the body as a whole? I think it's good for us to just self-assess that. Are you prioritizing your people over God's people? And is there an imbalance there? Third question, where are you prioritizing your agenda over God's? So maybe you're not prioritizing your home over God's. Maybe you're a renter and you're like, I'm putting no money in my apartment. I'm using goodwill furniture. Nope, doesn't apply to me. Well, maybe the second question applies. Maybe not. Maybe the third question. Where, where do you tend to prioritize your own agenda over God's? Is, 
is exercising more of a priority than getting in God's word? Maybe exercising is a form of worship. But is there an imbalance? Is putting in extra time at work to, to make sure that you have a good standing with your boss or you can get that promotion? Are, are, are you neglecting the family that God has called you to lead and to disciple? Just, just assess that for yourself. Where are you prioritizing your agenda over God's? My, my hunch is that all of us have certain things in these questions that apply to us. And then last question that I want us to ask ourselves, is God's glory your priority? Just, just really assess your life, church. If we want to be a people and a place of peace, it's so important that God's glory takes the primary place in our lives, that we're more concerned about him, that we're more concerned about what he wants, that we're asking him how to use our time, how to use our money, how to improve our homes or not to improve our homes, how to improve his building or not improve his building. Again, he doesn't rest here. This is a place for us to gather. But you know what I mean? I want all of you to know very clearly my end goal isn't that we would renovate this building. I really don't care. I think it would be amazing if we did. But, but I want us as a church to be prioritizing what God wants over what we want. And I think collectively, we want to be a people and a place of peace. And we see here in Haggai that, that, that the way to become, this is one of the ways, we're going to see other ways throughout the book, one of the ways to move, to make the shift from being in a hurried and hurting world to being a people and a place of peace is to prioritize God's glory over our own gratification. And so, where are you doing? How are you doing with God's glory being the focus of your life? And what's the solution? The solution is a supernatural shift from gratifying self to glorifying God. This, this, so this is what was true in Israel. They were concerned about their own gratification rather than God's glory. God's glory, again, in the Old Testament was contained to this building, this temple. It actually wasn't contained to, their, to that place, but that's where it was most visible and experienced by them. And so they were concerned about their own gratification, their own homes, their own clans, their own agendas, to the neglect of God's glory, of God's temple. The solution was a supernatural shift for them from gratifying selves to glorifying God. And I love this. It's supernatural. There's nothing that we can do to muster up a life that is more in line with God. The initiation comes from God. Look at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, it's just a day, August 29th, 520 B.C. Haggai woke up that day like he woke up any other day. But look at the second half of the verse. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. God moved through Haggai. God intervened. There was this supernatural act of God that, that met Haggai where he was at. I love the story of this preacher in Wales almost 150 years ago. His name was David Morgan. He was used by God to, to start this revival in Wales through his preaching. And by all accounts, he was just an ordinary preacher until all of a sudden God did something supernatural in his preaching and in his church that affected other communities. And David Morgan, reflecting on that experience, said, one night I went to bed like a lamb and I woke up like a lion. God did something. I woke up different. And then that, that revival went for a period of time for a couple of years. And then David Morgan says, one night I went to bed like a lion and I woke up like a lamb. 
And I just went about my work, preaching my sermons the way that I always did, and God used it in, a, in an ordinary fashion rather than a super ordinary fashion. And this that's, seems to be what happened here in Israel. God just intervenes. He speaks his word to Haggai, and he leads Haggai, the prophet, to speak his words to the people. Verses 1 through 11 of Haggai chapter 1 is God calling them out. How dare you, people of Israel, neglect the house of God for your own homes, right? Like, that's some confrontation from God. And oftentimes, when people are confronted with God's word, they, they rebel. In fact, Israel did it time and time again in the Old Testament. They would harden their hearts and they would turn away from the con- confrontation of the Lord. But here, God confronts them through the word of Haggai and they respond. It's a supernatural shift where God is getting their eyes off of themselves and moving their eyes and their efforts onto him. So 1 through 11, God calls them out. And then look at verse 11, uh, 12 and 13. Then Zerubbabel, he's like the, the governor of Jerusalem. He wasn't a king, but he was in the line of King David. So he would have been the king, but they hadn't set up their, their, uh, their political system yet and anointed him as king. He was the governor. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So we have king figure, we have the priest figure, and Haggai the prophet. The three offices of ancient Israel, prophet, priest, and king, are working together. Which, when they were divided and not working together, is one of the reasons why they went into exile some 90 years earlier. And now God is moving in their community. He's bringing unity. He's bringing togetherness. They're they're joined together. God moves in them and he stirs unity. Keep looking at verse 12. With all the remnant of the people. So the leaders are unified. The people are unified. All of Israel is unified. And they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They didn't rebel. They obeyed. And the word of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. They honored God, they respected God, they revered God once again. And Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you. See that? I mean, God was calling them to build the temple so that he could dwell in the temple. But he says, even before that, I am with you. Again, Old Testament was different, the temple represented something, but he's saying, I'm with you supernatural shift from gratifying self to glorifying God. We are dependent on God to move to God, for God to bring unity to the leaders into the church body and for God to remind us that he's with us. Look at verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of all the people. God stirred up their spirits, a supernatural shift in them from thinking about self to thinking about God. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Amen, church? So if we want to be a people in a place of peace, the answer isn't to renovate the building. It's to, to ask God to supernaturally move in us and to shift us from thinking about how do we gratify ourselves to how do we glorify God? How do we build the church, the people of God? Is God our priority? Is God your priority? It's this collective thing, but it starts individually. And so I encourage you, church, to assess, to think, to pray, and to ask God 
to move in you supernaturally to shift your eyes from yourself back to him. And the good news of us living in the New Testament, the truth for us to remember is that in spite of our propensity to prioritize self, anyone guilty or am I just preaching to myself? Any, any one of you have this tendency to prioritize yourself? In spite of our propensity to do that, we, we can't change that. That's hardwired in who we are in our flesh. We have been given a supernatural gift to help shift our priorities. God has given us true and abiding peace in Jesus and power through the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. That in spite of your battle with your wants, your desires, your covetousness, your wanting to gratify yourself rather than glorify God, you have been given grace and peace in the person of Jesus. You've also been gifted the Holy Spirit who helps you to continually grow in this. Amen? Let's look at John chapter 14, 26, and 27 as we close down. It's on page 901 in the Pew Bible. This is Jesus with his disciples reminding them of the peace and the power that he's given them. He's teaching them about the Holy Spirit, the coming helper before he is about to be crucified and then ascend back into heaven. And here's what he says. Verse 26, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Not contingent on your obedience, not contingent on anything, not with with condition, but he gives himself. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so church, be reminded as we seek to, to become in, in increasing amounts of people in a place of peace, that Jesus purchased peace for us and the Holy Spirit resides in us to help us extend that peace to others. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, that you have brought us peace, that you are peace. And as you say here in this passage, my peace, I leave with you my peace I give to you. We are a people now who can walk in peace. And you've given us the Holy Spirit to live this out. And so, Lord, I pray that we would continue to grow as a people and a place of peace. For your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.